Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I gotta tell you about this kid, Ted Conrad. You're gonna like him. Picture a young Topher Grace. You know, Eric Foreman from That 70s Show. He looked a lot like him with the haircut and all. Clean-cut kid, smart, 135 IQ. Elected to student council at Lakewood High. Lakewood's this blue-collar suburb on Cleveland's west side. I stayed with my mother there on weekends when I was a kid. Anyway, Ted Conrad... He was in the National Honor Society, the kind of young man who could have taken on the world and won. But something changed in Ted after high school. He graduated in 1967 and got into a good college, but he didn't last long. When he returned to Lakewood, he enrolled in night classes at the community college. He worked factory jobs, made enough to get himself an apartment, but the low wages must have eaten at him. Ted had expensive tastes. He liked top-shelf liquor. He wanted to own a sports car. Sometime in 1968, Ted went to the cinema to see the new movie, The Thomas Crown Affair. I'm a fan of the Pierce Brosnan remake that came out in the 90s, but this was the original with Steve McQueen. If you've never seen it, Steve McQueen plays this wealthy businessman who enjoys sports cars and beautiful women. But old Steve McQueen became bored with his success. Everything was too easy. So in his spare time, he plans the perfect heist to steal over $2 million. In the end, he pulls it off, beating the cops and leaving his girlfriend behind. Ted fell in love with this movie and the lifestyle of Thomas Crown. He even looked a little like a young Steve McQueen, started to dress like him, he saved up and bought a little two-seater sports car. Then, in 1969, Ted got a job at Society National Bank downtown. 
They made him a vault teller, and Teddy Conrad began to dream up a plan of his own. And guys, it was fucking brilliant in its simplicity and timing. Here's what he did. On Friday, July 11th, 1969, Ted Conrad left for lunch and returned to the bank carrying a paper bag. The guard checked it, of course, and Ted showed him what was inside, a carton of cigarettes and a fifth of Canadian Club whiskey. It was Ted's birthday, after all, and he wanted to celebrate when he got home. So the guard let him take the paper bag into the vault, and when his shift was over, the guard didn't bother checking the bag again. He'd already seen the cigarettes and whiskey, after all. He waved at Ted as he left, not knowing that Ted had replaced the smokes and booze with $215,000. Here's why Ted's plan was perfect. He did it on a Friday, giving him a two-day head start before the bank discovered what he'd done. And then, this is the best part, and then, when the bank and the FBI realized this kid had gone on the lam, they asked the newspapers to cover the case, but the entire front page was taken up by the Apollo 11 mission, our first trip to the moon. Any other week, Ted would have been the lead story. Because of the moon mission, his story was pushed to the inside. His brazen heist flew under the radar. And now for the heartbreak. Ted contacted his girlfriend, explaining what he did. He promised to return when the statute of limitations for his crimes expired. He knew that, for certain offenses, a clock starts to tick as soon as the crime is committed, and if the police fail to catch their man before time runs out, what they call the statute of limitations, it doesn't matter if he's guilty or not. They can't arrest him. Ted thought he could run out the clock and then waltz back into Lakewood like a pimp. It's true that the crime he committed, technically embezzlement, must be prosecuted within seven years. And if he'd played it cool, if the police had never suspected him, it might have worked. After seven years, he could have told everyone that he was the mastermind of the brazen theft, and there's nothing anybody could have done about it. But Ted left a trail of evidence in his wake, including confessions. And that was enough for prosecutors to get an indictment for his arrest. What Ted didn't know was that an indictment stops the clock on the statute of limitations. As long as the marshals find him, Ted Conrad can still be tried in court. But for 50 years, he's remained hidden. Some think he's dead, a John Doe in some distant pauper's grave. Others think he fled to a foreign country, maybe France since he took French lessons in high school. Personally, I think he's in Hawaii, where he was last spotted in 1969. Years ago, I saw an episode of Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations, where Bourdain went to Hawaii and interviewed an old man who refused to evacuate his house on the side of an active volcano. That old man is the spitting image of Ted Conrad, just, you know, older. Wherever he is, Ted would definitely recommend this episode about statutes of limitations and why we have them at all. This is the philosophy of crime. And I'm your host, James Renner. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why do we put time limits on the prosecution of certain crimes? Seems counterintuitive at first, doesn't it? Humans crave justice. We do. We're justice machines. We want to hold bad guys accountable. Otherwise, what kind of world do we live in? What difference does it make if someone stole money from us yesterday or seven years ago? Believe it or not, the statute of limitations was not created to benefit the thief. It was created to protect you. It's a safeguard to keep innocent people out of prison. How's that? Well, let's crack open a dusty copy of Halsbury's Laws of England, that revered encyclopedia of important legal stuff from the old world. It provides three reasons for having statutes of limitations for criminal and civil cases. One, a plaintiff with a valid cause should pursue it with reasonable diligence, right? If someone wronged you, it's your responsibility to seek out justice. You report it to police while they can still dust for prints and interview neighbors. You don't wait 10 years. Quick reporting of a crime shows that resolution is important to you. If you couldn't be bothered to report it, why should the police investigate it? Two, by the time a stale claim is litigated, a defendant might have lost evidence necessary to disprove the claim. If you wait 20 years to report that robbery, maybe the police zero in on the guy next door who got busted as a teen for shoplifting because they don't have any other suspects. He had a solid alibi the day of the robbery. He was at his aunt's house across town, but she passed away last year. Now, that innocent man is in deep shit because nobody can verify his alibi. Number three, litigation of a long dormant claim may result in more cruelty than justice. 
What does that mean? It means maybe the criminal who wronged you 10 years ago made himself into a better person since then. And by holding him to the fire for petty theft, it might destroy this better life he created. It's about grace. Remember in Les Mis when Jean Valjean stole that silverware from the church? He used those pilfered goods to pay for shelter and food after he was released from prison. And then he turned his life around, became a loving, adopted father to Cosette. He devoted his life to helping others. So would justice really be served if the church reported the theft of that silverware 20 years later? The idea of putting a time limit on prosecutions is as old as the court system itself. Over 2,000 years ago, in Athens, that's Greece, not Ohio, the courts had a five-year statute of limitations for all cases except murder and a few other serious crimes. The most famous speaker of his time, Demosthenes, defended the practice of time limits while arguing a civil trial sometime around 350 BC. Think of Demosthenes as the Ethley Bailey of classical Athens. Smooth talker, could sell ice to Eskimos. Demosthenes was at court, representing a man named Formian. Now, Formian was the former slave of a banker named Passion, who himself was a slave who won his freedom and became a successful businessman in Athens. When Passion got too old to work, he let Formian run things. And when Passion died, his will stated that Formian should take his wife and also become the guardian of his youngest child. The wife thing we can all agree is pretty messed up, but essentially Formian was the executor of Passion's entire estate. So he divvied up the money and businesses between the two sons and figured done is done. But then, 20 years later, Passion's oldest son, Apollodorus, sued Formian, claiming he was still owed his inheritance. By then, Passion's wife had died, and there was no real way for Formian to prove he'd divvied up Passion's stuff the way Passion had instructed. So, Demosthenes takes the floor in front of an assembled jury to speak for Formian, who was too old to do it himself. Now, please, to take the statute of limitations, says Demosthenes, the law men of Athens, has thus clearly prescribed the time. Yet the plaintiff, Apollodorus, after a lapse of more than 20 years, calls upon you to pay more respect to these charges than to the laws, according to which you are sworn to give judgment. You are bound to pay regard to all the laws, but especially to this, men of Athens. For, as it seems to me, Solon framed it for no other purpose but to prevent your being harassed with false claims. He considered that five years was a sufficient time for the injured parties to recover what was due to them. How would you like it, Demosthenes was saying, how would you like it if someone brought trumped-up charges against you for something you might have done 20 years ago? Apollodorus was using the court system to harass an old man. Demosthenes was so convincing the court didn't even allow Apollodorus to counter they sided in favor of Formian. Sure, not as cool as an episode of The Good Fight, but come on. This was thousands of years ago, and it's still an argument lawyers use today. Pretty cool. Statutes of limitations vary from country to country and state to state, 
and by the severity of the offense. Here in the United States, a civil claim must be made usually within one or two years. In Ohio, misdemeanor crimes have a shelf life of two years. Major felonies like arson, burglary, and rape must be prosecuted within 20 years. But in Pennsylvania, a charge like felony aggravated indecent assault has only a 12-year statute of limitations, and uh, that almost gave Bill Cosby a get-out-of-jail-free card. First of all, can we acknowledge how insane it is that Bill fucking Cosby is in prison for rape? I've gotten back into stand-up comedy lately. I love it. When I was in college, I was in a sketch comedy troupe. And there's nothing that feels as good as being on stage, telling some jokes, and making strangers laugh. When I was a kid, I had Bill Cosby's stand-up routines on cassette tape, and I'd listen to them on the way to baseball games. He influenced a generation of comics and storytellers. He was America's dad on The Cosby Show every week, and all this time he was telling jokes, he was also giving women quaaludes and raping them. It was one of those not-so-secret Hollywood secrets, you know? Like Harvey Weinstein. Everyone knew. Everyone had a story, but nobody wanted to take him on. He was too big. Too beloved. And you know how it all came to light? On a stand-up stage. It's very Shakespearean his fall. Here's what happened. It was October 16th, 2014, and cell phones had just gotten to that point where people had decent cameras and lots of data, and so we started taping everything. And someone went to the Trocadero comedy club in Philadelphia that night and recorded comedian Hannibal Burris's set. And during that set, Burris called Cosby out. He made fun of Cosby's smugness, how he liked to tell black kids to pull up their pants. And then Burris said, yeah, but you know, you, you raped women, Bill Cosby, so that kind of brings you down a couple notches. The video went viral, and finally reporters started digging. And when the articles came out, so did the women. To date, Cosby has been accused by 60 women of assault and rape. 60. It went on from 1965 to 2008. He did it for so long, quaaludes went out of style, and he switched to Benadryl. There was public outcry, but the prosecutors had their hands tied by the statute of limitations for many of his assaults. Most of the attacks were decades old. And then Andrea Constand came forward. Constand was the director of operations for Temple University's women's basketball team. Cosby donated lots of money to Temple University and had received an honorary degree from the school. A mutual friend introduced Constand to Cosby, and for the next 14 months, Cosby groomed her, mentoring her about business and life. In January of 2004, Cosby invited Constand to his mansion in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania. He gave her three blue pills. Herbal medicine, he said. It'll help you relax. But really, it was Benadryl. Soon, Constand couldn't move her body, and that's when Cosby made his move. She woke around 4 a.m. to find her clothes laying all over the room. That was felony aggravated indecent assault, and it was coming to light in late 2014. If the prosecutors were going to charge Cosby, they needed to do so by 2016, or they'd never get another chance. 
To make matters worse, this all came out during an election year in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Democrat Kevin Steele promised to prosecute Cosby if elected. Republican Bruce Castor doubled down and blamed Constand for her inconsistent testimony. Bad move. Not only did Steele win the election, but Constand sued Castor for defamation. After he won, Steele made good on his promise, and an arrest warrant was issued for Cosby on December 15, 2015, just two weeks before the deadline. Eventually, Cosby was sentenced to three to ten years in state prison. Good news, though. I checked the commissary. They're loaded with the jello pudding pops. On cop shows, some detective is always saying in a gruff voice, there's no statute of limitations on murder. And that may be true today, but it wasn't always the case. You know why it changed? You guessed it, Frank Stallone. Just kidding. It was the Nazis. Why was there ever a statute of limitations on murder, you may ask? Easy. A hundred years ago, we didn't have DNA. Fifty years before that, we didn't use fingerprints. A murder case back then relied mostly on witness testimony, which is notoriously unreliable. Unless you were caught in a room with the body, reasonable doubt was always on your side. The comedian John Mulaney has this bit in his show where he imagines a detective at a crime scene back then. What was a murder investigation like in 1935, he asks. Detective, we found a pool of the killer's blood. Hmm, gross. Mop it up. Now back to my hunch. In Germany, the statute of limitations for murder was only 20 years, all the way up to 1969, when it was increased to 30 years to allow for trials of Nazi war criminals. After the Third Reich was defeated in 1945, the Nazis that worked the extermination camps went into hiding, removing their SS tattoos, changing their names, and blending into society. By day, they worked in factories and played with their kids. At night, the horrors they perpetrated chased them in their nightmares. They knew they would be hunted for the rest of their lives. There would be no mercy for those who created the Holocaust. In 1979, Germany abolished the statute of limitations on murder altogether so that the trials could continue. It went on far longer than anyone could have predicted. I grew up in Northeast Ohio, and I still remember how big the John Dumianyuk story was back in the 80s. Maybe you've seen the Netflix documentary about this. Here's what happened. There was this old man living in the suburbs of Cleveland, John Dumianyuk. He worked at the Ford Motor Plant on the west side, looked like a typical Midwest grandpa. And in 1983, he was accused of being Ivan the Terrible, a sadistic guard who worked at the Treblinka extermination camp, where over 900,000 Jews died in the gas chambers. This guard liked to torture the prisoners on their way into the gas chambers, cutting off their ears or their breasts. It was the kind of story that made me look at old men a little differently. Could that nice man with the German accent who works behind the counter at FedEx be a Nazi war criminal in hiding? Demianyuk was extradited to Israel and put on trial. They found him guilty and sentenced him to death. But then his conviction was overturned. Turns out, the documents linking Demianyuk to Treblinka 
were likely forged by the KGB. But his victory was short-lived. When the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, new documents from East Germany linked Demjanjuk to the Sobibor extermination camp. People used to picket his house outside of Cleveland. I remember one of the signs said, If not Ivan the Terrible, then still a terrible Ivan. In 2011, at the age of 91, more than 60 years after the end of World War II, Demjanjuk was convicted of being an accessory to the murder of 27,900 Jews and sentenced to five years in prison. While awaiting his appeal, Demjanjuk died, and since his appeal was in process, he's still considered an innocent man by German law. Reporters at the time predicted that Demjanjuk would be the last Nazi to ever face trial, but that wasn't true. Several former SS guards have been arrested since then. In the fall of 2019, a 93-year-old man was charged with accessory to murder for his role in the camps. Since he was only 17 years old when he worked as a Nazi guard, his trial was actually held in juvenile court. The wheels of justice turn very slow sometimes. Lately, technology has pushed the statute of limitations forward. Now we have genetic genealogy. The ability to take DNA from a crime scene, tease out the unique genetic profile of the suspect, and go looking for his relatives in 12,000 different online genealogy databases. Once you find a killer's second cousin, you can trace his family tree back to him. It's amazing. This is how we caught the Golden State Killer in 2018. Already in Ohio, there's an effort to abolish the statute of limitations on rape because of the advancements in familial DNA. I support that, but let's be careful. It's a slippery slope. Imagine a world with no statute of limitations for any crime. What if in your rebellious teenage years, you nicked a Nirvana CD from Sam Goody? Should you have to suffer through the anxiety that the police could still come knocking on your door 40 years later? That the good life you built could be destroyed by a stupid choice you made as a kid? Hopefully not. And that brings me at last to the concept of amnesty. You probably know that word from Amnesty International, even if you don't know exactly what it means or what Amnesty International really does. Does the word remind you of anything else? Amnesty. How about amnesia? Same root, and a good way to remember it because at its heart, amnesty means legal forgetfulness. Some people use amnesty as a synonym for a pardon or forgiveness, but Amnesty is a tricky word, a deep, thoughtful word. Amnesty is typically granted by heads of state, presidents, kings. It's often a kind of blanket forgiveness for political rivals who want to join the winning side. For instance, amnesty was granted to southern soldiers after the Civil War. You're a part of us now. We forgive you. Not only do we forgive you, but... We'll do our best to forget that you ever took up arms against us. Your criminal record is obliterated. Draft dodgers after the Vietnam War were given amnesty. It's a progressive liberal notion. But do you want to guess which president once granted amnesty to three million undocumented immigrants? Ronald Reagan. 
the Messiah of evangelical neocons waved his hands and granted amnesty to just about every undocumented immigrant who snuck into the United States before 1982. How about them apples? Could you imagine Trump ever doing the same? Amnesty is as close a thing to mercy as we have in our laws. The statue of justice, it wears a blindfold. Justice is supposed to be blind. That means it should be indifferent. Justice should be unconcerned with the notions of forgiveness or, on the flip side, vengeance. A judge should be little more than a referee, making sure each side follows the rules. But we're all human. Humans run on emotion, not logic. And a great many of us believe in second chances, in forgiveness, because we can empathize with the criminal. Maybe we've been on the other side or know someone who has. If a stranger robs a bank, I'm okay with them going to prison. But if my kid robs a bank, I'd want them to be free because I know him. I know he's capable of change, of becoming a better person, but isn't every robber someone's child? One of the earliest recorded acts of amnesty took place in the time of Socrates and Plato. Socrates, like Obi-Wan Kenobi, had a pupil who turned to the dark side. His name was Critias. In 404 BC, Athens fell to Sparta after a long, drawn-out war. Democracy crumbled, and in its place, a Spartan general selected 30 men to rule Athens with an iron fist. Oligarchs. They were known as the Thirty Tyrants, and at the top was Critias. During their short reign, the Thirty Tyrants executed over 1,500 people without trial and exiled many more. Critias was the most sadistic of the bunch. A rebellion was formed and Critias was killed during the battle to win back Athens and to restore democracy. It's likely that Socrates' connections to Critias is what led to him being put on trial for corrupting the youth and executed shortly thereafter. Anyway, when the rebels won back Athens, the legislators offered amnesty to anyone who served under the 30 tyrants as a way to restore and to reunite their city. Their crimes were forgotten. I want to introduce you to a couple modern philosophers now. Both are Jewish, both survived the Holocaust, and both have every reason to promote vengeance, and yet they are remembered for their thoughts on forgiveness. First is Emmanuel Levinas. He grew up during the Russian Revolution in Ukraine and then went to college in France where he fell in with some very influential French philosophers. He became a French citizen in 1939, and if you know anything about history, that was kind of a lousy time to become a French citizen. When World War II broke out, Levinas enlisted as a translator for the military but was captured by the Germans in 1940. A stroke of luck, perhaps. If he'd simply been labeled a Jew, he'd have been sent to the extermination camps. Maybe he would have met John Jemianyuk on the way to the gas chambers. Instead, he spent the remainder of the war with political prisoners. In the POW camp, he began jotting notes on philosophy. Much of Levinas's work is focused on the dangerous concept of the other, which we've discussed before. For millions of years, we lived in small tribes, and we still carry with us this, this need to label anyone outside our group as an other, someone to be distrusted, a paranoia that left unchecked 
leads to tragedies like the Holocaust itself. What Levinas suggested about forgiveness was pretty trippy. He said, Forgiveness acts upon the past, somehow repeats the event, purifying it. I've seen this notion pop up in modern psychiatry, in stuff like narrative therapy, this idea that forgiveness can change the past, or, or at least our perception of the past. Author Lisa Gunther expands on this idea in her book on Levinas, The Gift of the Other. Forgiveness does not erase or annihilate the past, she says. It does not transform me into a blank slate. The forgiven past does not restore my innocence or make my mistakes disappear, but rather alters the ethical significance of these mistakes, and so alters the significance of the past itself. Philosopher number two is Hannah Arendt. She's kind of a big deal, and at some point we should delve more deeply into her ideas, but for now, you should know that Arendt was born in Germany in 1906. She studied at university under renowned philosopher Martin Heidegger. Their relationship was both professional and romantic. When Hitler came to power, Arendt fled first to France and then to the United States, the Gestapo on her heels every step of the way. She wrote some wonderful books on philosophy. In 1961, she traveled to Jerusalem to report on the trial of Adolf Eichmann for The New Yorker. Eichmann was the guy who handled the logistics of those extermination camps for the Nazis, the grand foreman of the genocide of the Jewish people. Arendt noticed that Eichmann, during his trial, just looked like some powerless, balding bureaucrat. She was entranced by this juxtaposition and coined the phrase, the banality of evil, to explain how ordinary people can be manipulated into doing unspeakable things. In 1958, Arendt published her most influential book, The Human Condition, in which she identifies two actions that are most important to our survival as a species. One, we should forgive past wrongs so that we're not chained to the past. And two, we should strive to build a better future for everyone, forgiveness and hope. Arendt was fascinated by the way each generation brings new thoughts and ideas that push the boundaries of philosophy and understanding. If not for these fresh thinkers constantly appearing on the scene and challenging their mentors, we would have surely destroyed ourselves already. The promise of a better future is what gives us the hope to go on, even after we fucked up. Arendt recognized that when someone wrongs us, our human instinct is to wrong them back. But this leads to a never-ending cycle of revenge. An eye for an eye makes the whole world go blind, right? There are only two things that can stop that cycle. Punishment or forgiveness. And forgiveness is much more powerful. The act of forgiving can never be predicted, she writes. It is the only reaction that acts in an unexpected way and thus retains, though being a reaction, something of the original character of action. Forgiveness is the freedom from vengeance, which by itself need never come to an end. So how exactly could we forgive a crime? What is the procedure? In order to apply for proper forgiveness, philosopher Charles Griswold suggests six conditions the perpetrator must first meet in order to be forgiven. Number one, 
they must acknowledge that they were responsible. 2. They must promise to never do it again. 3. They should express regret. 4. They should perform service of some kind to show they have changed. 5. They should recognize how the victim feels. And 6. They should explain why they did what they did in the first place. We see similar conditions set on the criminal whenever amnesty programs are attempted in American cities. If you've listened to Season 3 of Serial, you got a little taste of the justice system here in Cuyahoga County, Ohio. It's a bureaucratic hell run by powerful rich white men targeting minorities. The overcharging of minority suspects has created a culture where the residents are reluctant to call the police when they need help. Many have gone into hiding instead of facing minor charges because they don't want to go back to jail. So some Cleveland suburbs are trying amnesty programs in order to clear the books and to give these low-level offenders a second chance. In October 2019, East Cleveland held an amnesty and expungement community event organized by city council member Shay Gaddison. Some East Cleveland residents made mistakes early in their adulthood that are keeping them from jobs, Gaddison said to Cleveland.com. I'm trying to make a way so young people can turn their lives around. Anyone convicted of nonviolent misdemeanors to low-level felonies were eligible for amnesty. A month later, Cleveland Heights adopted a similar program. Citizens hiding from warrants, unable to get jobs, and become active, helpful members of society were granted forgiveness with one wave of a councilman's wand. And suddenly, all those cases were closed, and the cops could focus on bigger crimes. How wonderful is that? This idea of amnesty, of forgetting a crime, speaks to that third reason we have statutes of limitations. Remember, litigation of a long-dormant claim may result in more cruelty than justice. I can feel some people cringing at that idea. Forgive a criminal, but why? Because as the programs in Cleveland prove, amnesty can solve old crimes faster than traditional retributive justice. Amnesty puts people back to work. It raises the criminals out of poverty. It provides a second chance. It provides something they are lacking in this world, the opportunity to improve. We have legal statutes of limitations on most crimes, but we also have an existential statute of limitations, too. Every criminal will die. That limitation is set by God or or the universe or whatever. It's out of our control. Sometimes the Grim Reaper comes calling before the criminal ever serves a day in jail. That's what we're up against with the big cases, like rape and murder. It's a ticking clock. Can we find the evidence needed to convict someone of murder before they die? I've been thinking about the Amy Mihalovic case a lot lately. We just passed the 30th anniversary of her abduction and murder. Her killer remains at large. Now, let's say the man was 40 years old when he committed the crime. He'd be 70 now. Even if detectives find some evidence to finally arrest him, he will die in prison, having served less time on the inside than he was free on the outside. Is that really justice? So what if we offered amnesty to this monster? I'm not talking a a complete forgetting. I'm talking about the idea of a sliding scale, where the punishment decreases as time goes by. 
that killer is out there somewhere. Knowing that any day, a SWAT team might come crashing through his door. That's got to be a living hell. And well-deserved, sure. I hope he's nervous every day of his life, but this killer is keeping a secret because it doesn't benefit him to share it. But what if we gave him an incentive to come forward? After 30 years, what if the prosecutor offered to set the death penalty aside? What if he offered the killer 20 years in a warm bed with a TV, in a secure facility, away from Gen Pop, in exchange for the story of what he did? Give Amy's father the answer he needs in exchange for a little bit of amnesty. What's the downside? How many unsolved cases might be solved if we offered similar deals? What if every crime allowed for amnesty in some way? Fewer charges, a reduced sentence in exchange for not wasting hundreds of man-hours on an investigation? Maybe, just maybe, it's time to consider making amnesty and forgiveness a part of our justice system. Thousands of years ago, the founders of philosophy introduced statutes of limitations as a way to forgive and forget crimes that could not be quickly solved. It was only the development of technology that eroded these limitations, and we're not better for it. Certainly, Ted Conrad isn't. Old Teddy has been hiding for 50 years because he stole some money from the bank he worked for when he was barely more than a teenager. He's out there somewhere, worrying every day that the marshals will show up at his door. That seems like punishment enough for me. Ted Conrad deserves amnesty in his old age. And in exchange, we could have his story. Where he's been, what he's been doing, how he managed to elude police for half a century. It will be one hell of a story. And I'd like to hear it before he dies. The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the State Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit jamesrenner.com where you can find more information on my true crime books and novels. My website also has a link to the nonprofit I started last year, The Porchlight Project, which raises money for new DNA tests for Ohio cold cases. It's easy to donate online, and every little bit helps. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Look for his other creations, including Genius Dice, wooden dice that give an artful twist to your gaming night, and his new Dueling Pints drinking game. It's rock, paper, scissors on a pint glass. Both are available on Amazon. Until next time, remember there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everyone took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when someone needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.